Welcome back to Parashat Re'eh. See, my name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary. And this is part B to the podcast. We have already been discussing the law of God. We've talked about the Torah, its roles and its functions. And we pulled some quotes from um, the excellent resource, Torah Rediscovered, by Ariel and Devorah Berkowitz. We're now on the top of page 4, if you have the written notes available. And we are picking up our discussion where we're going to continue talking about the law of God. Now, in my experience with uh, writing commentaries for the Messianic community, dialoguing with uh, different people, believers and non-believers alike, Jew and Gentile, I find that the um, majority of my audience tends to be well-meaning Christian believers who are either coming out of traditional Christian teachings, that is to say, not leaving behind the doctrinal um, core values of our faith, you know, Jesus is the Christ, born of a virgin, things like that. Rather, coming out of the traditional misunderstandings of the Torah as it bears relevance to Christianity. For uh, for instance, much of my um, discussion with Christians revolves around uh, the role of the Torah in the life of a believer now that they've come to understand that the Torah has not been done away with. And so to that end, um, the discussions are, are well, they're, they're rather interesting to say the least. Now, n- not everyone is favorable towards this Torah-positive message, and that's understandable. With 2,000 or so years of tradition within the Christian church teaching us that the Torah has been abolished, that the law has been done away with, and that we're no longer under the law, well then it's understandable that we're going to have some opposition to a commentary such as mine, which teaches that the Torah is a positive um, asset in the life of a believer. So I understand that there's going to be some challenges. So let's talk about one of the primary uh, discussions that I seem to encounter again, in my uh, position as a Torah teacher within the Messianic community. If you have the written notes, we're at the top of page 4, and this next paragraph is entitled, Law versus Grace. Oh yes, we're going to go down this road. Now, we in the organized church, we have fallen for an age-old lie labeled Law versus Grace. That's right, I called it a lie. There is no, well, I'm just getting ahead of myself. I was going to tell you, there's no um, contest, law versus grace. Law wins every time. No, I'm just joking. Um, it, it should not be a contest in our minds at all. We should, it's really the law, it's, it's the wrong headline to begin with. Even though I'm labeling this particular section of my commentary, law versus grace, we should not pit law against grace. It should not be a question of, should I choose law or should I choose grace? It's the wrong contest from the word go. However, since we do have this traditional misunderstanding in many Christian circles, and again, I say Christian circles because if you jump over into the Judaic camp, over into the synagogue side of the house, they are not going to argue whether or not the law is done away with. Obviously, the default position within standard traditional Judaic circles is that the law is not only not done away with, but that we even have the oral tradition to contend with. In other words, not only do we have a written law that is still in effect, in many cases we have an oral law that also governs our lives. So I'm not going to go there in this particular commentary. I just want to talk about the Christian argument of law versus grace. Um, Again, in reality, after careful examination from the unified word of God, the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, 
I've come to understand, and many of you listening to my podcasts, reading my commentaries, attending Messianic congregations, have come to the same conclusion. There exists no conflict between law and grace. Okay. Now, to prove it, I'm actually sitting in front of my computer right now. Let me just turn to my browser. I've got a Macintosh, obviously. So I'm going to open up Safari instead of Internet Explorer. Let's go to Google. And let's get to the front page. And I'm going to type in a phrase. I'm going to type in the phrase, Law versus Grace. Hit Enter. And I end up with, it says... 2,190,000 2,190,000 results of Law versus Grace, a variance of that title, Law vs. Grace, Law v. Grace, Law versus Grace, Grace versus Law, uh, things like that. And um, the websites are, that I'm looking at come, many of them are Christian, I'm assuming, just by the title. We've got MyRedeemer.org, we've got Tentmaker.org, Xenos.org, Christian. ChristianIndianTV.homestead.com, MaimHaim.org, GeoCities.com, Acts1711.com, GoodNewsArticles.com, BibleBell.org, BibleExaminer.org, and on and on and on it goes. So in my commentary, what I mentioned was that just before putting together this commentary, I decided to do a Google search for the specific topics of either law versus grace and or not under the law. In fact, let's just do one here now for not under the law. Let's go back to the Google search. Not under the law. Hit enter. And now I end up with 525 million articles for not under the law. And again, the same website results seem to be, let's see, we have Xenos.org, Chris Hammer, Dash Hodgetts, Blogspot.com, Upper-Register.com, Wikipedia.org, Copyright.gov, <laughs> Copyright.gov. Must be a different law. Uh, GayChristian101.com. Oy vey. Just for the Catholics. Justforcatholics.org. Counterpunch.org. Bitlaw.com. My point in bringing up the results for you guys uh, listening today is to let you know that this is a huge issue. A huge um, discussion within Christian circles. Now, I'm Jewish. Okay? I was born Jewish. And uh, I wasn't raised Jewish, unfortunately, but I was born Jewish. I was raised in a Christian home. Fortunately, I was raised in a Christian home. And um, I was raised in a Baptist school. What I've done is I've recovered my Jewishness. Around my early 20s, I found out, um, well, I found out from reading myself that the Bible is God's Word and that um, the words contained therein apply to me as a believer, as a child of God. And what I also discovered was that there was a people group known as Israel. And this people group called Israel had inherited a document known as the Torah of Moses. And that piqued my interest. So I began to ask around, found out I was Jewish, found out that the Torah was for us. And thus my journey really began as a Christian uh, in my early 20s in rediscovering my Jewish roots. So what I say in my commentary is as a Jewish man with a scriptural understanding handed down to me from my Hebraic heritage, the one that I re-embraced, uh, the one rooted in the Torah of, Mose, uh, of Moses, the results of the Google search that I just made, they're saddening to me. Why are they saddening to me? Because as I begin to click on the articles, I find that 
and usually what I'll do is I've, if I just want to peruse the article, I'll click on an article such as Law versus Grace, I'll read the opening paragraph, and then I'll scroll all the way to the end to their conclusion and read their conclusion. And typically their conclusion reads something like this. We are not under the law. And the we that they're referring to in their article are usually Christians. So the author of the article is usually speaking for mainstream Christianity. And so I can make a fair assumption that most of the articles written by Christians are in fact of the conclusion that we, the Christians, are no longer under the law of Moses. Where the phrase under the law of Moses means obligated to keep its instructions. And this usually works itself out into the um, communal to, the communal norms such as Sabbath versus Sunday, where Sunday wins. Kosher versus unkosher, where unkosher wins. Um, biblical festivals versus the traditional... Uh, Christian festivals, where the traditional Christian festivals win, um, and on and on it goes. So, again, law versus grace introduces uh, a contest, supposedly, between the Torah of Moses and the grace of Jesus. That's where I'm assuming the word law versus grace fits in. Now, if I've incorrectly described this contest, and you're listening to my podcast, please write in to me. My address is yeshua613 at hotmail.com. Send me an email and tell me that there is a different argument that your community is referring to. I'm quite sure that the law versus grace argument centers on um, a teaching that, uh, that goes out somewhere to the effect that Christians are no longer obligated to obey the law of Moses. We are now under the grace of Messiah. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. Something to that effect. I'm, I'm trying to get the general gist. As I understand it, that is the contest that is being put forth um, uh, in many churches today. But if I've, I've, if I've incorrectly represented this argument, then go ahead and write to me and correct me. Tell me, tell me what law versus grace means, in your opinion, or if your pastor, or your Sunday school teacher, or your Bible study teacher is, is presenting something different when they say law versus grace, um, maybe they're talking about that we're no longer under the curses of the law, but we're obligated to keep the law. Something that I think. Go ahead and write, send me an email. I'd like to hear um, some of the various views that... Uh, uh, are going are taking place in your churches uh, and in your communities and how you uh, interact with that. So quite typically, the views that I'm about to share with you here in my commentary, uh, the the views that I've, I pulled some of these uh, results from the Google search and I've go ahead and I went ahead and put them in my commentary. And so quite frankly, I get out. I don't know about you, but I get out. What do I do? I go and visit churches. You know, I slip in. Somewhat anonymously. I mean, it's hard to slip into a church these days and not be noticed as a visitor, especially in my position when you've got a beard, kippah, tzitzit, and a peyote. <laughs> you know, the little side curls hanging off your head. It's hard to be. It's, it's hard to slip in unnoticed. I visit churches, and when I visit, I don't show up to spy on them. I don't show up to harass them. I don't show up to uh, argue with them. I don't show up to. Um, make fun of them or mock them or tease them or do any such thing. Rather, I, I go to visit churches so that I can understand quite honestly what it is that churches are teaching so that I can enter into um, well-meaning dialogue, perhaps with anyone who wishes to listen. I don't have all the answers. I'd like to know um, you know, what opinions are being shared, and I'd like to know where I can fit in. So the views that I'm going to show with you or share with you here in my commentary, I went ahead and um, pulled some of them from some of the websites that I visited. I took out the authors' names for the purpose of anonymity, but. 
basically, um, as I begin to read them, I think you'll agree with me that they flow, the, the, the thoughts that I'm going to share, flow freely from many, many Christian pulpits the world over. Okay, So here we go. Again, the purpose of this exercise in reading these comments from the commentaries, I am not trying to tease, belittle, uh, denigrate, look down on, um, show superiority to, uh, to any of the people, the authors of the websites that I visited, um, I, it is not my purpose to mock or, or demean or uh, to do any, of, any such thing. This is an educational exercise, and I hope you understand that what I'm trying to do is in order to gain an appreciation for uh, the discussions that take place in these law versus grace um, uh, uh, settings, I need to be able to read their comments and be able to bounce off of them. So that's what I'm going to do first, all right? Um, we need to have an honest discussion of this topic, and so this is where we start. So my first quote is two paragraphs long. It reads this way, quote, Galatians 3 is the Apostle Paul's most definitive statement as to the purpose of the law and the distinction between the law and faith. Such a radical change has occurred in the coming of Christ that Paul can describe the time of the Mosaic Law in verse 23 as a time, quote, before faith came, end quote. In verse 25, he says that now that faith has come, we are no longer under a disciplinarian, which he has just described as the law. It goes on to say, Of course, you are also familiar with Paul's statement in Romans 6 that we are not under the law, but under grace. Verse 14. We must allow the full force of these statements to hit us and not allow Paul's words to die the death of a thousand qualifications. End quote. Okay, that's our first lift. Our second one is pretty short. It reads this way, quote, Paul does not qualify his words by saying we are not under the ceremonial law or we are not under the civil law. He clearly and simply states in verse 25 that we are not under the law, end quote. Uh, let me just say this up front. Most of the quotes here in these commentaries start picking on Paul. Have you noticed that? Now, that's understandable because Paul is the one in the New Testament who is most naturally associated with the phrase under the law and the phrase works of the law and the phrase, uh, well, law. Paul seems to talk about the law a lot. You know, after all, Paul wrote most of the New Testament, so it's justifiable. So I can understand how that many of these discussions are going to pull quotes from Paul, especially from his books uh, to Galatians, to Romans, to Ephesians, Corinthians, etc., all right, let's keep reading. Here's another one, um, two paragraphs long. It reads, quote, Paul says over and over that, and, I'm sorry, Paul says over and over, and the Galatians would be expected to understand, as you are, that the time of Moses has ended. Something new has come. Now, in chapters 5 and 6, he will make the connections as to how the law is fulfilled in the life of the church, but at this point, the Spirit is, is making it clear to you that the law, as was delivered to Moses, is over. What then was wrong with the law that we cannot be under it anymore? Galatians 3.12, quote, The law is not of faith, end quote. The principle of faith is opposed to the Mosaic law, end quote. And then we've got another quote here from these web results. It reads this way, quote, You see the difficulty, do you not? Adam, as our covenant head, was placed under a covenant of works. Upon his obedience, he would merit for his people eternal life. Adam fell and brought all mankind under sin and condemnation. But God came down and made another covenant, the covenant of grace. In this covenant, God promised a deliverer who would defeat Satan and do what Adam failed to do. 
Paul calls him the second or last Adam. Not only would this deliverer fulfill all righteousness for his people, but also because of our sin, he would need to take on the punishment his people must pay. And in quote, and then there's another one that reads this way, quote, Isaac and Jacob placed their faith in the covenant of grace promised to Abraham. So everything is going along rather swimmingly until we come to Moses. God makes a covenant with Israel. The law given on Sinai is called a covenant. Was this the covenant of grace? Why does Paul say that the Mosaic covenant was not of faith, unlike the covenant promised to Abraham? Quote. And then finally, the last quote reads, this Mosaic Covenant was different than the Covenant of Grace. This Mosaic Covenant sounded a lot like what we'd seen with Adam before the fall. Israel must obey, the, uh, must obey the law to receive life, and if they disobeyed, they would be cursed. Sounds just like what Adam heard. This is Paul's point in verse 10. There appears a curse just like there was in the Covenant with Adam, and the curse was promised to come on Israel if she did not continue in all the things written in the book of the law to do them, end quote. So, those were some of the, the discussions as I lifted them from my Google results on Law versus Grace. Now let's compare that to my own commentary. Based on what we've just read, is law really opposed to grace? That's the question. Were God's commandments so impossibly constricting that we as frail humans desperately needed Jesus to come about and set us free from such bondage? Is that really what we read and understand as we read Paul's writings? I mean, is this what grace is all about? Help me understand. Now, I don't really believe that that's what grace is all about. Now, first of all, we have to start by examining this, this supposition that the law is too hard for anyone to keep. Is the law really too hard for anyone to keep? I think it is quite a good practice when we as Bible students, when we ask a Bible question of the Bible that we let the Bible answer for itself. Now I understand, the same authors of those commentaries that I just pulled quotes from are using the Bible to answer their questions as well. However, let's allow the Bible to answer in context. I'm going to turn to the Torah proper. Now when I say Torah proper, I mean the first five books of Moses, because as you know, I use the word Torah to include not only the five books of Moses at times, but sometimes I mean the Torah to mean the rest of the Bible as well, which would include the rest of the Tanakh, or at times I may mean the Torah, I may use the word Torah to include what you have come to refer to as apostolic scriptures at times, the New Testament. But this time I just want to talk about the Torah proper. Let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy, this time in chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, and see what they have to say about the Torah itself. Now we're going to pick up the context of the answer to the question of, is the law really too hard for anyone to keep? And the context is going to be established by Moses himself. Now Moses is the lawgiver. And Moses is speaking to the children of Israel. And Moses expects them to be able to obey the very words that he is giving to them. The very words that God has given to him. So the question can be posed to Moses. Is the law too hard for anyone to keep? Now, of course, the natural recipients of the question should be the children of Israel. So allow Moses to speak to the children of Israel in an answer to the question. This is from the KJV, quote, For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, 
Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. End quote. Wow. Did, did you hear what the verses said? That doesn't sound like bondage to me. Moses is giving a command to Israel to keep the words of God. And he's anticipating the arguments that the children of Israel might have as they anticipate walking into the commandments. They might say, it's in heaven, we can't do it. Moses anticipates this argument, this excuse, and he says, it's not in heaven that thou shouldest say, who shall go up for heaven and bring it unto us? Notice that. He also anticipates their arguing that it's across the sea. For the Israelites, this would be the Mediterranean Sea to the west, on their west border. It's across the sea. Who's going to go over and go over the sea and cross the sea and bring it to us so we can do it? It's too hard. We can't do it. Moses, again, anticipating that they might have this, um, this excuse. He says in verse 13, it is it is not beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it to us, so that we can hear it and do it? So you see, Moses is anticipating the excuses that people will come up with when faced with the challenge of keeping the commandments. And Moses doesn't seem to describe them as bondage the same way that our standard uh, religious teachers are describing it. You've heard it said, the law is bondage. It was a it was a burden given to Israel so that they could understand how exceedingly sinful they are. And thank goodness that we have Jesus to bring us the grace of God so that we can be set free from the bondage of the law. You've heard this said before? I've heard it said before. So notice, what was Moses' answer in verse 14? I'll read it again for you. The word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. End quote. Moses, speaking by the Spirit of God, tells Israel, It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Therefore, you can do it. Oh yes, you can do it. I mean, again, the last few words of verse 14 say, Thou mayest do it. So, so far, far from teaching an impossible standard of obedience, the Pasuk states that it can be done. The verse states that the Torah can be done be obeyed. It can be followed. Now, at this point in time, many of you listening might ask, well, Ariel, show me a verse from the New Testament that agrees with what you just showed me in the Old Testament. So, that's a good challenge. Can I find contextual agreement within the pages of the New Testament? Well, I believe I can. Let's turn to John. I'm, far, I'm sorry. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, and see what this verse tells us about the commandments of God. Again, from the King James Version, quote, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. End quote. Why does this passage surprise us as New Testament believers in Yeshua? 
I'm sure as I read those words, some of you were surprised. You've, you actually maybe put down my your, your iPod and went and picked up your Bible to read the verse to make sure it read that way. Some of you were surprised, but I hope that most of you were not. Because many of you, by this point in time, if you've been following along with my studies, we're here in the book of Deuteronomy, which means you have endured Genesis through Numbers up to this point. And now we're in Deuteronomy and we're almost done. At this point in time, you've already come to understand that God's words are not an impossible standard. And that God does not ask of us something that he's not going to equip us to be able to do. You see, the secret to understanding John's words here in in 1 John 5 is that John was speaking by the Spirit of God. And so when he says that um, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments... Obviously, John is referring to the Torah, because the New Testament writings had not been codified yet. They had not been canonized. Now, we know that John was familiar with Jesus' teachings, so we can also include the oral teachings that the Master had handed down. I'm willing to accept that um, historically, but um, we we do not have the New Testament writings um, bound together into the Bibles that we call our own Bibles today. That, that had not been put together yet. So we know that John at least had the Torah in mind. Besides, he says, uh, for this is the love of God. Notice the subject is God, and that we keep his commandments. The his there must be referring to God's commandments. And ask any Christian or ask any Jew, what are God's commandments? And we start instantly thinking about those which are found in what we call the Old Testament or what Jewish people call the Torah and the Tanakh, you know, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So we know for sure contextually that we are referring to the very words that Moses handed down to Israel. And then John goes on to remind us, by the Spirit I might remind you, that God's commandments are not grievous. God doesn't give us commandments that hurt us, that... that, that um, that do damage to our communities, that are hard to do. That doesn't mean that they don't present challenges. Oh yeah, they're challenging. But they're not too hard to do. Because you can do them, just like Moses said. What did Moses and John both have in common? They both had a real relationship with God via the Spirit of God. Therefore, they both understood that to walk into the ways of God required the Spirit of God on the inside of a person. A circumcised heart is the prerequisite for properly keeping the commandments of God. Now, I ask the question, why did that surprise us when I read the passage? Why does it surprise us? Well, again, I believe it has primarily much to do with the fact that we believers pretty much have been trained over the last 2,000 years or so to believe that grace is diametrically opposed to obedience to God's words. And you know what? Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, grace, given through his generous spirit, is what enables us to properly obey the law in the first place. That's the challenge I'm trying to present to us today. Were it not for God's grace, many of the saints of the Tanakh period, the uh, saints of the Old Testament, they would have surely perished under the letter of the law based on their moral failure to uphold the many details that the law spells out. Let me just give you two examples. Moses was a murderer, was he not? Moses premeditatively killed a man. He saw a man who was an Israelite arguing with an Egyptian. And Moses thought to himself, he looked this way and that. So when, it, when the text tells us that he looked this way and that, that means he, he, he weighed out the consequences of what he was contemplating in his mind. He went over, he slew the Egyptian, and he hid the body of the Egyptian in the sand. Moses murdered. Now, according to the law of Moses, 
according to the law that he was going to give to the children of Israel later on in his life, what are the consequences for murder? You tell me. You already know the answer. The murderer is to receive the death penalty. Now let's pull out another example. David also looked across his courtyard, lusted after a woman who was not his wife, took the woman into his bed, slept with her, and then to cover his tracks, he premeditatively murdered, although he did it via proxy, but he premeditatively murdered Uriah, the husband of, of uh, Bathsheba, Bathsheba. So David was a murderer as well, and David committed adultery as well. David committed adultery, and David then murdered. I want you to go look up Leviticus 20, verse 10, and tell me what the consequence is for a man who takes a woman who's not his wife and sleeps with that woman. A man who's married and sleeps with another woman who's not married. What is the consequence of such a sin? You go look it up, Leviticus 20, verse 10. Get back with me if you don't know the answer. Based on these two examples that I've given, these two gentlemen should have died according to the law of Moses, according to the letter of the law. But what we understand is that God extended grace to these gentlemen, and they did not receive the full weight of the law. You can go back and look that up to, 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 to see how that's borne out. So what I want you to understand is that the law is full of grace, and the reason the law is full of grace is because God extends His grace via His Spirit so that we can walk into His laws. God doesn't expect perfection. God anticipates our failures, and consequently, the sacrificial system makes provision for renewal of the relationship when we step out of line. Again, um, many of the uh, people in the time period of the Tanakh should have received the full wet mate, uh, the full measure of the punishment of the law. Moreover, many of us today, if we would stop and realize that God is within his boundaries to slay us for the many sins that we commit, then the law is perfectly, um, perfectly right in punishing us the way that it, uh, it describes punishment. So we cannot think to ourselves that uh, there's no grace in the Old Testament or that the Spirit has not been given to help us walk into the Torah. Now again, this important Spirit-led feature it is the secret to properly understanding the passage quoted by Moshe in Deuteronomy in chapter 30 above. In Deuteronomy chapter 30 that I read, um, where Moses says, This commandment which I commanded this day is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. And then in verse 14 of chapter 30, he says, The word is very close to you. It's in your mouth, it's in your heart, you can do it. The only way that, that it can be done, Moshe understands, is through the Spirit, okay? Moshe could boldly state that thou mayest do it because he knew that when the Spirit of God who gives the Torah comes to live within an individual, viz. the circumcised heart of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, then the very same Spirit also writes the Torah on the heart, enabling the individual to do it. Are you beginning to understand now, as New Testament Christians, that the law can be done? Without the person of the Spirit living within us, we will fail to uphold the righteous standard of the law. Now, we're not talking about doing every part of the law. We can only do the parts that God has enabled us to do. Even if we have the Spirit, we still can't step into the sacrifices today. Why not? Because there is no temple, there are no priests, and we have no right to sacrifice in our own backyards. 
God clearly commands that we sacrifice only on His terms. Where He commands us, when He commands us, how He commands us. So if we wish to walk into those parts of the Torah, we're going to have to wait for God to allow the temple to be rebuilt, the priests to be regathered, and the animals to be slain by them. So, again, we, we, we understand that Torah keeping is done not only within the Spirit's power, but it's done within the parameters that God has allowed for us within the 21st century today. Stepping into the Torah means, first and foremost, relying on the Spirit of God. Which, I, I, I'm just going to say it plainly, if you want to properly keep the Torah of God, you must accept the Son of God. That's a challenge to the standard Jewish community alone. If they want to properly walk into the Torah, then they must avail themselves of the Spirit of God. And today that means accepting His Son. So the challenge to your average Jewish person is, how are you going to keep the Torah if you don't know the Son of God? It's a challenge. And you know what? Many Jewish people are finding that it is a challenge to keep the Torah, and they scratch their heads and can't understand why they keep struggling, why they keep failing. We as believers, both Jews and Gentiles, need to lovingly show them and explain to them, take them by the hand and, and, and um, witness to them, um, offer to let them know that God has sent his Son into our communities, into our very hearts, so that we can repair the damaged relationship and so that we can begin to properly walk out the Torah. So I'm presenting challenges both to the Jewish community and to the Christian community today. Um, I want to continue in my commentary. It's 30 minutes into my teaching, but I just want to finish up my last few paragraphs and then we'll just bring the commentary to a close. We all have challenges when it comes to walking into God's ways. We step out, we try to keep God's laws. Many of you listening today are in a position where you are already embracing the dietary issues. You're already embracing the Sabbaths and the rest of the festivals. Many of you are, have already begun to wear um, uh, tzitzit, and some of you are even wearing kippahs. You know, that's great. I think that really is great. But we all have the same question, what happens when we fail God? Do we expect that the Torah... For instance, here's a question I get from time to time. If the Torah is still in force today, and I believe it is, then what happens when, say, we violate the Sabbath? If you read Exodus chapter 30... Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 31, starting at about verse 12 through the end of that chapter, you'll find that one of the punishments meted out for Sabbath violation is death. That's right. Sabbath violation is a capital offense. So you have to ask the question... What happens when we fail God? Are we to understand that since the Torah is still in force, that God is going to strike us down? Dead? No, no, no. I want you to understand. Well, for one thing, grace steps in and allows us time and time again to try to accomplish the good pleasure of our Father in Heaven. God knows your heart. God knows that you are not cold towards his ways and towards his words, God can look into your heart and see whether or not you give a rip about his commandments. You know what I mean? God will look into your situation and judge for himself whether or not you are earnestly trying to keep his laws or whether or not you've just given up, thrown your hands up in the air and said it's all useless. So grace steps in time and time again. And I know this is a hard lesson for us to learn, but we've got to understand we cannot exhaust the grace of God. So grace steps in and says, I like to, let me, let me, let me kind of personify grace, right? Grace says, grace looks at me. Grace, of course, is, is the face of Yeshua. Grace looks at me and he says, Ariel, I know you tried and you failed. In fact, you will never reach perfection until I return. Grace looks at me and says, but that's okay, Ariel. I'm not expecting perfection. 
you just do your best by giving me your whole heart, your all of your soul and all of your strength, just like the Torah says, and I will fill in the rest. I'll do the rest for you, okay? That's grace. Does everyone agree? Jesus steps in and fills in the parts that I can't do. In fact, often, many many people, many believers have reported that they feel that Jesus is doing all of it for them. I think that's fanciful. I know that there are parts that I'm doing, you know. God asks me to love my wife. I don't expect Jesus to step in and do all of the loving for me. I think there's a part that I'm commanded to do. I step in and purposefully, willfully love my wife. I extend love towards her. That's not all Yeshua inside of me doing that. I mean, Yeshua is empowering me to do it. But I like to believe that it's my own will agreeing with the will of the Father in extending love towards my wife. But grace steps in when I cannot, I can't take it anymore. I have my good days and I have my bad days. And you know what I do sometimes? I just let loose. And I just scream at my wife and I yell at my wife. And, you know, obviously I'm speaking in hyperbole here. I don't do these things all all the time. But you, you get my point. We fail God from time to time, and grace steps in and says, I'm not going to zap you and fry you up just for one little failure. And you know what? The same God that we serve today is the same God of the Old Testament. He didn't step in and zap people left and right just for their first-time failures. God's grace extended to them as well. The proof is in the examples I gave you towards Moshe and and, uh, David. So, grace is there to help us when we fail. The Torah does not demand perfection, and if it did, we would have no need of the sacrifices. So, back to our Torah portion. Moshe is giving Am Yisrael a chance to experience the grace of God on an everyday level. Every day they can experience the grace of God. You know, they had already witnessed the supernatural hand of the Almighty as he delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. Which, by the way, it forms a picture of deliverance from sin today, right? The deliverance from Egypt, corporately, as we read about in the Torah, is a picture, a type and shadow, of the personal deliverance that each one of us experiences when we placed our genuine faith in Jesus. Now, deliverance from Egypt, that was surely a monumental event. Yet now Hashem is teaching His people that since they were free, they no longer need follow their old passions and their old ways of life. That's what the Torah is teaching them now. To be sure, Moses has told them on an earlier occasion to what? Circumcise their hearts in order that they might genuinely be obedient to God. Circumcise your heart. Listen to the words I'm saying today, people. Circumcision of the heart. Does that sound familiar to you? If you've read it in the Torah, and you're shocked to read it in the Torah, then you should be asking yourself, I've heard this before, circumcise my heart, circumcision of the heart. Wherever heard this before? Is it familiar? Well, it should be. Why? Because this is what we call, what we Christians call, a New Testament feature. That's right. Circumcision of the heart is, in fact, a biblical mandate, and it spans the entire Bible from Genesis to, as Norm Franz would say, from Genesis to Maps. Circumcision of the heart is not something new, some some new requirement that Jesus brought along and that the Apostle Paul taught on. This is a feature that has been required of God's people from the very first incident uh, recorded in the Torah, when, when Adam strayed and ate the forbidden fruit. When God wanted Adam to return to a, a right relationship with God, well then Adam's heart must, be, must, must, must needs be softened so that God 
can uh, uh, repair the relationship. So we see that a circumcised heart is God's desire for his children, for all of his children, not just for New Testament believers, but for Old Testament saints as well, if I can use those terms and uh, get away with them. This heart, this soft heart, this circumcised heart, this is a heart which will say to the Lord, quote, All that you ask of me, I will do. End quote. The circumcised heart doesn't argue with God, because the circumcised heart is open to the Spirit of God. And what does this, excuse me, what does the Spirit of God do with the words of God? Well, the Spirit of God, according to Jeremiah and according to Ezekiel and some places in Isaiah, the Spirit of God writes the words of God on the softened heart. The passages that illustrate the circumcision of the heart um, throughout the unified Word of God are too numerous to point out in this particular study. But let me go ahead and close my commentary today with this concluding thought, okay? The message of the ages remains strikingly clear. What is it? Love God with your whole heart, soul, and might, and He will cause you to walk in His ways. His ways include salvation. His ways include healing, financial blessing, a blessing. His ways include relationship building. You're struggling with your marriage. You're struggling with that relationship between your kids. You're struggling with your relationships between your, uh, your in-laws. You're struggling with relationships at, at the workplace. Surrender to God. Surrender to His Spirit. Walk into His ways. God will help you with those relationships. God is the one who will begin to work on the hearts of the individuals involved. Walking into His ways allows God's promises of healthy and plentiful offspring. These are also in the Torah as well. God has promised to Israel that if you walk in my ways, I'll bless the fruit of your womb. You won't have closed up wounds. And in the time period of the Tanakh, um, time periods of the Near Ancient East, um, the ancient Near East, for a woman to have a closed womb was considered a curse. So there are many numerous things that I can't even name here. Just start reading the Torah and understanding that the promises in Yeshua are yes and amen. And the promises are the ones that we read about right here in the Torah. His blessings are reserved for those who would soften their heart to hear his voice. If only ancient Israel would learn this lesson. If only we could, today could get this down inside of our hearts and, and begin to share this message in our communities. Share it with your friends and family members. Share it with the pastors who are arguing over this law versus grace issue. Share it with them. Let them know that God's blessings is found right here in the pages of the five books of Moses, the Torah. They are reserved for those who will surrender their hearts and their wills into the, in, into the hands of the Master. We are the recipients of the blessings spelled out here in the Torah if we name the name of the Lord through Yeshua, the Messiah. So His blessings are reserved for us, for those who will surrender their will into His hands and allow Him to shape their lives into the pattern of that of His only and unique Son, Yeshua, the Savior of the world. Therefore, as I close this commentary, the parashat re'eh, see. See today, just like Moses said, the choice is yours. Do you want blessing, or do you want the curse? I don't know about you, but I choose the former. 
The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet Vechaye Olam Natabatochenu Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and you have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. With that, I bid you a Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.